Well, welcome to the middle of our conversation in progress. We're here up on the roof at Jerusalem U. Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge in the old city of Jerusalem, looking over at the beautiful landscape around us and a lovely waving Israeli flag above our heads. And our sukkah. Yeah. I'm uh, co-host Michael Unterberg with, as always, co-host Alan Goldman. How are you doing, Mike? Thank God, very good. And, uh, and once again, we have the treat of the Zen master of Israel articulation, the great privilege of Zev Ben Shachar. How's it going, Zev? Hi, Chag Sameach. That's right. We, had, we were in between Yom Kippur and Chag Sukkot, and we would like to begin what we hope becomes a regular part of our podcast, and that is we'd like to start responding to questions from students. And here's one that we got from Gabi Benisti, who last year was in Emunava Omanu. She heard a presentation on campus about Israel's role in the West Bank and its occupation of Palestinians and the settlements as an obstacle to peace. And we would like to just address that today in what may not be our longest episode, but will be the beginning of a series of episodes dealing with that topic, in particular with an issue growing in the news about um, the town of Amona, and that's going to be an ongoing story that we're going to have to deal with as we go forward with the future episodes of the podcast. Before we discuss that issue, though, I, I would like to mention that as we record today, I'm not sure when you're listening to this episode, but as we record today, uh, UNESCO is voting on a resolution that will essentially uh, ignore the Jewish connection to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And... I guess we don't have that much to say about it other than that we're deeply offended and that it is, uh, it's a—it's pretty much a crime against history to be manipulated politically by a number of countries who are trying to uh, make Israel seem like a, an illegitimate country. And, and we were just sort of wondering, when people hear that, you, if people hear that UNESCO makes a resolution, do you think that'll affect people's opinion. We were just musing about that as the episode started. What do you think? So the question is whether we should even dedicate time to talking about this uh, absurdity uh, of a decision made by uh, or voted upon by uh, UNESCO. Uh, I think in, in many ways it's a waste It's a waste of time. Um, it, it's not something that we take seriously. At the same time, Many uh, students, uh, many of uh, the audience uh, that uh, um, we appeal to don't know um, or, or treat the UN as the source of uh, 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 peace, harmony, justice uh, in the world. Um, I would imagine that not um, that a small fraction of them um, 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 understands the UN. Um, in the way that we uh, do, which is not necessarily a source of truth and a source of justice, um, especially not when it comes to uh, Israel. I wonder, I wonder. And, you know, UNESCO, how many people are aware that UNESCO is making this decision? UNESCO is the section of the United Nations that deals with world heritage sites of cultural value. And so this statement, uh, essentially denying the Jewish connection to the heart of our homeland, is. Uh, particularly troubling. But I, I, I wonder, I, I question that, Zeb. That's a trend. I, I wonder if people really are aware of things going on in the UN, and when they do, you know, there's such a, we live in an age where there's such a pervasive cynicism about institutions, 
that I wonder if people aren't just cynical about the UN as being. I, I wonder how persuasive that is around the world. No, I think that. I mean, I'm sure that there is a certain kind of cynicism or suspicion to some degree, but. Again, it's seen as a source. If you're on campus and there's an apartheid wall or whatever you want to call it or any kind of literature going, it says UNESCO has said that's a source. You know, that's a source that you have to deal with and you have to accept. And it's also a trend that's going on. It's not the only place in Israel that UNESCO has voted on that. It happened in, in, in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Rachel's tomb, um, and, and other sites where there's this ongoing... Uh, not even attempt, an ongoing uh, attack against Jewish heritage sites in the land of Israel. So I guess I agree that we shouldn't spend too much time on it, but I would love, assuming we have enough listeners, I would love even an anecdotal, unscientific survey. Ask around, kids on your campus, what do you think of the UN as an institution? Do you think its declarations hold weight? Do you think? I would be amazingly curious to hear what you guys uncover and send it to us, um, which you can always do by contacting us on our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org which brings us I, I have to just jump in for this a totally non-relevant or but uh, apparently Bob Dylan has won the Nobel Prize for Literature wow. which I think is a pretty oh, monumental uh, moment in uh, Jewish accomplishment <laughs> we look at Another you know, Jew. who are the Jews you Another know? Jew Robert the Zimmerman Prize. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'll Michigan. just say one more thing about uh, UNESCO and, and this uh, um, libel uh, that they're voting uh, on. Um, you know, we like to um, learn. We, we like to use Israel as a platform for learning bigger ideas. And one of the ideas that we discuss in our courses is the big lie theory, or the big truth theory, really. The big lie theory uh, was originated in uh, the uh, uh, 30s by Joseph Goebbels, the minister of propaganda Nazi Germany, and he said that if you make up a lie that is big enough, outrageous enough, and repeat it over and over again, the masses will start believing it. And I, um, the response to that is the big truth theory. We need to find out those uh, truth regarding Israel, regarding the Jewish people, and then repeat them over and over again. Uh, and uh, and uh, we believe that the truth will uh, prevail. But this uh, lie of UNESCO that uh, there's no uh, Jewish connection to uh, the Temple Mount, to uh, the Western Wall, is an example of a big outrageous lie that is repeated over and over and over again, and the masses will unfortunately uh, believe it. At least the Nazis had the guts to say their lies out loud. This UNESCO proclamation is just going to talk about the Temple Mount and leave out. It's even... it's. It's not that... Exactly. It's so... Ugh. Okay, anyway, that's enough. We're, we're, we want to start uh, Sukkot, so let's talk about happy things, like trouble in the West Bank. <laughs> um, also a difficult topic, but also one where, where as, as Zev is saying, there are certain basic fundamental truths that if we keep returning to, that will help us understand for ourselves and be able to articulate to others what's really going on. And essentially, how would you, how would you articulate the uh, settlements as the obstacle to peace argument that people send, tend to make? And many governments around the world are really making it. And I think, we, first of all, I think we have to define again, clarify what we mean by settlements, because and, uh, and what we mean by the West Bank, and what we mean by the West Bank, and what, uh, what we're talking about. Remember, 1967, Israel um, was at, uh, at war with three Arab countries: Egypt, Syria and Jordan, 
um, and and conquered territory from three of those countries. One was the Gaza Strip from Egypt, one was the Golan Heights from Syria, and then was called the West Bank from Jordan. What was it? The West Bank of the Jordan River, and it's also Israel preempted when it was about to be attacked by Egypt, but Israel was attacked by, by Jordan. Jordan. Jordan attacked first. Right. Jordan attacked first, even though Israel said, stay out and then we won't, we won't attack you. Um, but uh, the West Bank, so the, the, what's called the Green Line along the West Bank, uh, cuts through some major um, Jewish history territories, such as Judea and Samaria, and uh, also uh, what we call East Jerusalem, even though that actually is partly all south and north Jerusalem also, but yeah. that's uh, colloquially at least what it's called. And though that territory of the West Bank um, uh, was um, also not given to Jordan or, or uh, during the 1947 partition plan, they conquered it in the 1948-1949 war with Israel. Um, and so it was always a, a contentious piece of land since then. Um, and so then to clarify, when Israel makes distinctions in those territories um, between uh, what we would call legal settlements and illegal settlements, whereas most of the world does not make that distinction, and anything over what they most of the world will call the green line, um, they will, they'll refer to as illegal settlements. So, for instance, um, a neighborhood in Jerusalem, such as Gilo or French Hill, which are over the Green Line, but in Jerusalem municipal boundaries are considered illegal by many countries around the world, including the U.S., where most of our listeners probably are, um, whereas Israel sees those as absolutely legal and the right to build them because they're part of Jerusalem, let alone further expansive settlements such as Gush Etzion or Ariel, which are more contentious. So what, what I'd like to do, because, because it's a little hard to follow without actually looking at maps, yeah. what Alan just described, I will put on, the, on our website and in the, uh, in the notes to this episode, I will put maps that explain the different stages of what Alan was describing that are labeled so you can see maps of what Alan is uh, laying out to understand the geography. But the essential point was, if you had to boil it down, is that Israel, in its defense, conquered this land in 67. It did not annex it and make it officially part of Israel. Jews started moving in, which Israel sees as a legitimate place for Jews to live. And uh, Why? Because it's our historical heartland. Many of these lands not only were historically Jewish before the six, before in antiquity, but many of them were Jewish towns before 1948, and, and Jews were driven out. And there was no legal... No nation had a legal claim to it. Uh, ever, so the actual the actual difficulties of international law and how it's implemented here are complicated. Why is it that it's referred that Jews so Jews moving in here is very controversial? What's the population in the West Bank now? Over two million Arabs and four hundred thousand Jews, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Four, yeah, four hundred thousand Jews. I think the the numbers in the Arab world. You see, they uh, vary from 1.8 million through 2.6 million, I think, um, in the demographers. It's so let's say over two, because it's a hard number to. It's anywhere between what? Right. 1.5 and, and 2.5. So whether you consider uh, East Jerusalem as right. part of the uh, territories, then it would be, I think, 600,000 uh, Jews mm -hmm. that are living uh, all together. Right. Um, 
It's already, we're already getting complicated. Already getting complicated, uh, and you have uh, different demographers trying to make uh, different cases for or against the uh, settlements. Listen, I live in the West Bank, and I just had a conversation this week with an electrician, an Arab gentleman. His name was Khardun. I don't not, his last name doesn't matter. And he was basically explaining to me that uh, that he doesn't like that people see. Now he, he's in my house working, and he was explaining to me that he, he it bothers him that there's fighting and violence. He said, as an Arab and a Muslim, he sees my people as being from this part of the world. He sees his people as being from this part of the world, and he can't understand why we can't live together in peace. He can't understand, and he thinks this is what he he said to me. Alan's making a skeptical face no, no, for those. I want to ask you a question when you're done. Yeah. yeah. So he said to me, if only people were like you and me, we wouldn't have these conflicts. These conflicts are because there's a lot of politicians who make a lot of money off keeping the conflict going. But there must be a way that we can figure out how to live together. And essentially what he was saying was, now here's a guy who makes a lot of his living off helping Jews build and settle homes. Settlements in the West Bank. Settlements in the West Bank saying to me, yeah, I think it's it's groovy. And as a guy who lives in the West Bank, I'm having conversations with Arabs who I interact with all the time, now, who I get along with very well as neighbors. Now, I'm not naive. I understand in the history of the world, neighbors can be pushed to the point of turning on each other. Well, also, you have to define neighbors. I think you're over-idealizing neighbors because neighbors, when I think of neighbors, you know, it's my, my next-door neighbor, the guys around me. When you're talking about neighbors, you're talking the next hill over or in the valley. You're not talking about yeah. living with you in the settlement. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. yeah. No, I'm not talking about guys who live... I'm talking about the guys who live over in Husan, which is the next settlement right. over, and it's Arab. And he and his family, and we all get along very nicely. And I don't talk politics with them when they're working because I feel well, like... Would you make that same statement? Yeah, so we should all get along, like, in other words, you know what I'm saying? Would like, I? Yeah. Yeah, of course. And about the politicians and all that, that's what I mean. Yeah, I think bad political decisions have led to this being a sustained conflict that could have been resolved many times over. He and I, Khardun and I, might disagree about what that best resolution could be. But if it weren't for the folly of, in particular, Palestinian leadership, keeping the conflict... Listen, very important to this whole story. In 2000, the West Bank and Gaza were offered to the Palestinians. Yasser Arafat walked away from the negotiating table without a counteroffer. That was supposed to be the Palestinian state. Not just without a counteroffer, but he incited and inspired the Second Intifada. Launched. Launched the the Second Second Intifada. Intifada Uh, the Second Intifada, the Palestinian uprising, the violence that uh, uh, claimed the lives of thousands of uh, uh, Israelis and Palestinians. So there wasn't, it's, it's not was like it, he... What was it like living here? It's not like he couldn't, I wasn't living here, but I know uh, many of my friends were living here, and there was, there was violence, there was terrorism. Uh, I have a friend who was you're, living here. <laughs> he, you're my friend. Terrorism <laughs> on a do, daily basis. What did that do to the idea... Of, uh, of two states living side by side, the second intifada. So, um, for myself and I think many Israelis, we took a sharp turn to the right, if you want to say that, in the in our politics. I was uh, uh, for Oslo. Um, I thought it was uh, a chance worth taking. 
Um, and then Oslo? Oslo was the agreement, the basic agreement that we're still the framework, if it's still alive or not, of of two states, um, one Palestinian state somewhere in those territories I described earlier, and living alongside an Israeli state um, in peace and mutual recognition. So that was the things. process started in the 90s between Israelis and Palestinians to work out how they could be two side-by-side states for two different nations. Right. Um, and uh, in 2000, as things started changing, um, so many of us moved to the right and said, hey, wait, what's going on here? As we were living under a what? terrorist assault that um, had been much worse than the first intifada, which I also lived through, and pretty much any other mission, uh, missions why? or sense. So that's explained. So, and why was it worse? I'll give one, one no, no, story. Why was it worse? What happened? To the, to, you're saying there was a political shift of the people. Uh, in I was going to just say a bit story about what it meant to live like in Go the ahead. second intifada. So um, uh, I was flying to the States one, at one point, um, and I got to the States. I flew to the States. I landed. I heard there was a bombing in Jerusalem, and my parents picked me up at the airport and said, Don't worry. We, sp- we spoke to your wife, Missy. Um, your son is fine. Uh, the bombing had missed my son's school bus. He was in second grade at the time by about two minutes. He had just gone through that 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 um, intersection. And so as a parent, I would have known that that's where, you know, when I heard where it was, that that's where he should have been at that time around. Um, those were the kind of incidents that were happening day in and day out um, uh, during the second intifada. It also sparked everybody getting a cell phone here because everybody wanted to know where everybody was at all times. Um, so what happened in the political shift is that that um, for Israelis, and I don't even actually think it was just Israeli Jews. I, by the way, I'm not sure it was a shift to the right. I think it was a despair of a peace process with the with the so, administration okay. of the Palestinian Authority. Right. And I don't think it was just Jewish Israelis. I think it was Israelis bichlal, right, at all. Um, and a, a shift of... Of the, losing what? any kind of faith in in this political because process. Just the, I mean, the context is that this offer that was made by Ehud Barak, the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, in 2000, made on behalf of the Israeli government to the Palestinian Authority, headed by Yasser Arafat, basically offering first over 90 percent of the uh, uh, West Bank and the Gaza Strip, later on over 96 percent. Uh, of of these uh, areas for a Palestinian state. And the answer was not, no, we'll think about it. The answer was no counter-argument. The answer was the second intifada, terrorism which claimed the lives of thousands on both sides. My wife also made aliyah during the second intifada, 2002, uh, a few days after she arrived in, in Israel. In her apartment in Jerusalem, she hears... uh, an explosion uh, um, right next to where she was living from the Moment Cafe. Do you guys remember there was... Yeah. And and she went outside and she saw, you know, burnt um, buildings and other terrible uh, uh, sites. And um, I think this this kind of uh, uh, reality with time changed the psyche of, uh, of many Israelis, left and right, that just uh, thought to themselves, well, what else can be done? What else can Israel do for the sake uh, of peace? And so it goes back to our initial question is, you know, are the settlements really the source, the obstacle for peace? 
Well, you'd have to look at what existed here before Israel started building in, in, uh, in the West Bank, in Judea and Samaria. And you can see that over time, before 67, even before 1948, there was constant uh, terrorism, there was constant uh, uh, attacks on Israelis, on, on Jews, and perhaps there is a bigger uh, uh, root cause for the conflict today. What would you say that bigger root cause is? So I, I've said this for the last 10 years, and I still believe it, is that while there are many um, minor causes where there are many circumstances um, uh, involved, the root of it is the rejection, Palestinian rejection, of any kind of uh, Jewish sovereignty and freedom in any area in the Middle East. And so it's not about Israel's size, it is about Israel's very existence. I said this 10 years ago, and I still believe it today. And we, we see it today. We see that with the fact that it was offered again to Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, who's currently the head of the PA, in 2008, who also responded without a counter offer, without any negotiation. He simply ignored the offer and, as con and continues to speak from the rostrum at the UN about essentially denying Israel's right to exist. And so it, it, it becomes less an issue about borders and just the issue of can Jews have any sovereignty in this part of the world at all. As soon as Palestinian leadership is willing to accept that, you've got a very different future ahead for this region of the world, wherever Jews live. And I'm not sure, by the way, why there should be areas. There's no, there are no areas of Israel where Arabs aren't allowed to live, per se. Why shouldn't Jews be able to live? In other words, I live in the West Bank. Let, that's not totally true. Why is that? That's not totally true because there are communities like uh, my community. I'll be very honest, right? I live on a moshav, not a, not a see what, what have you. And an Arab family could not move in there. But they could, they live in the region. They could live in the in region. Words, it, they it, could it, live they would the not be allowed to move into the moshav. No, I don't believe so. There's a, there's a, you know, uh, a um, committee that you have to pass through. And I'm sure they wouldn't allow them in. Those By the way, that's a bigger problem with Israeli life and culture, right. that you have restricted communities all right. over the country. Right. They're restrictive the way, they on all sorts of reasons. Also, exactly. non-religious aren't allowed to. Exactly. That's why I didn't, one so. thing I didn't want to do when I lived here was move to a restricted community. But they would, I'm sure, restrict Arabs from, from living there. Right. So but they wouldn't, based on religion. Side to Nechusha, you could have uh, an Arab village. Yeah. The you truth is, the closest village to us is an Arab village. It's right. in the other side yeah. of the Green Line. We don't have what they had in South Africa, which are Bantustans, where right. the regions are cut off. Either this is a white Correct. region or a black region. I, I want to push back on that, because what you're saying then potentially is a very bleak picture um, of setting up that it's total rejection of Israel being at, at all. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, I don't think that's bleak at all. Look at, look at Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia now, even as we speak, is beginning to make diplomatic moves as they realize it's to their benefit to deal with the Jewish state in a positive way. Egypt did it. Jordan did it. Yeah, I'll but tell uh, you why it's bleak. I, I'll tell you why you, you see it as bleak. And, and I think you're also speaking into the listening of many of our audience that see it as bleak because it gives you no control. Because it's, you're essentially saying that making peace in the region in, in, between Israel and the Palestinians is beyond uh, uh, Jewish Israel's. control, Israel's mm -hmm. control. And I think that comes across as, as bleak. And, and, and in, in that sense, I, I do agree with you. That I, I, I agree with your assessment, but I look at it much more optimistically. Look, 
Let's not kid ourselves. The problems. Go, go ahead. You want to? No, I wanted him to finish. I didn't know no, I'm saying. I, the bottom line is, you know, you know, we live in a world where we think that um, there is this arrogance that we we can solve everything. You know, we can solve. Uh, um, uh, conflict, we can solve wars uh, solve all around us. Crisis. Solve the the, <laughs> the border crisis, but you know, I I believe that there are some problems that today are are beyond uh, our control. In other words, I have no control over the type of hate education that is taught in Palestinian schools in Ramallah or in the Gaza Strip, or over the rejection of. Uh, uh, politicians such as Mahmoud Abbas, who, by the way, is considered a moderate today, over his rejection of a Jewish state in any borders. Uh, and I think it, what's not bleak uh, in this picture is that to the degree to which we understand that this is the reality, then we can start focusing on those things that we actually can control. And perhaps we should hold the Palestinian Authority accountable and the Palestinian education system accountable. And it should be that until there is no peace education that becomes part of the curriculum, there is really nothing to talk about, or until there is no acceptance that the, uh, we are here to stay, we're not going anywhere, that this is a Jewish state and we are here to stay, then there should be no uh, fluff talk about this uh, pipe dream of... So peace. then let's agree that the fundamental obstacle to peace is broadly Arab, but more specifically Palestinian leadership rejection of the right for the Jews to have sovereignty in their homeland. The, 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 the inability to recognize that that's even a valid concept in the eyes of the Jews and the denial of any Jewish place here. That being said, that, that we are not in control of. Go ahead. Well, I want to say that we're, if we do all agree to that, then we're steering definitely away from the mainstream. Right, the mainstream assessment of what we're talking about is well, that ma mainstream of whom? Because the mainstream of Israelis, and that's why I disagree with your, your your calling it a shift to the right. I don't know that Israelis have shifted to the right. I think Israelis of the left, their mainstream understands that we are not we are no longer in control. We are not in the driver's seat to make peace with the people who reject our right to exist. That's not an so, achievable about the goal. Now I wasn't talking about Israel. Right. I wasn't talking about Israel. Community. I was talking about international community, right? As we see again in the votes in the UN, uh, Kerry's recent statements, Obama's recent statements about the settlements, about what started all so this. So let me reframe it. And I'm not saying they know what they're talking about, and I'm not saying they're not idiots. I am saying if I wanted to make a valid argument out of what they're saying, I'm not defending Kerry. I just want to say that. Without, I don't. I want to be. It's after Yom Kippur, so I still want to have a nice thing. I'm not going to say my assessment of his. Uh, mental acuity, but I will say this. Uh, so, so then they can say to us, okay, I hear you, Zev. You're not in control of that. And you know what? I don't think peace can really be achieved. I agree with you. Until, until Palestinian leadership changes or comes around. And who knows? Abbas isn't... Uh, who knows how, wh what changes are going to bring. But I will tell you this. You are in control of something. And that is... Should you be pouring more Jewish homes, towns, and neighborhoods into areas that they want to make the basis of their state? You have Jews living there, okay. But isn't it time for... Further, you're making it impossible for them. If they, when, 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 because we believe they will make that shift, let's say, to your thinking, 
you're making it impossible because you're splitting up the West Bank and taking control of too many of the major arteries, the resources, and whatnot. You're purposely building homes and towns in such a way as to prevent them, the Palestinians, from being able to achieve statehood. And therefore, you're right. The state of Israel is not the primary obstacle, and the settlements aren't the primary obstacle. The primary obstacle is Palestinian rejectionism. But since you are in control of Jewish settlement, and since you are a democracy and I can have a conversation with you as a society that shares our values, mm -hmm. and because we share as allies uh, a set of ideals, I am pressuring you for your own good to reduce settlement building in the West Bank, not for us, but for you, the state of Israel. Well, That's, I think, all, the, the valid version the, of the let argument. Let me just say that for your own good, uh, I, I'm a bit skeptical about, you know, Kerry's commitment to or our own good or Obama's commitment to our own good. I, I, again, I, I'm leaving out the individuals. I'm saying I'm putting the argument in, I think, what is best possible form, which is essentially the friend saying to the yeah. other friend, listen, your fourth or fifth friend has come to you and said, give me the car keys. You're drunk. And you say, no, I'm fine to drive home. And by the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth person who comes to you and says, give me the keys. Uh, by well, the way, and it's either, I mean, and again, I think the left in Israel definitely makes this argument. I think they even go further. Say, and, and you're even giving the Palestinians justification for their argument. Right. Uh, I, I think, I think what I'm saying is Shalom Achshav's position, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, so. here, first of all, you know, this is not a podcast about agreeing with everything that the Israeli government Correct. does or says. Correct. And I, 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 I don't think it's our job on this podcast no. to choose who's right or wrong within the Israeli body politic. But I do think it's helpful if we can articulate the arguments yeah. on either side. And I would say that... In the Zen master of articulation. Yeah, right. And, and I would say that, you know, where it is within our control is, uh, you know, the Israeli government today needs to decide for itself, not for the Palestinians, not for the international community, but for ourselves what our, what our borders are. And be clear, and... If we are not, if the Israeli government is not committed to a two-state solution, then build as much as you want. Who cares? But if you're saying, and they are saying, Netanyahu has expressed it time and again that he is committed to a Palestinian state, then yes, don't build where you think that Palestinian state will be. But I think for our moral clarity, it's important that we decide for ourselves what our our borders. So, so you're I saying the problem is even more fundamental. Yeah, I would agree with Zev, and I think that if we say the problem um, on the Palestinian side is rejection of Israel's right to exist, bichlal, that's what we seem to say. I think that Zev is absolutely right. On the Israel side, the problem is is that we've made no decision. We've made no decision. We've just tactically let things happen, um, and then we're always in the wrong. So we haven't decided, okay, this is Israel, this belongs to us, we have rights to be here, so we're going to annex it. Right? And we're going to call it ours, and we're going to turn people into citizens. Or we don't want to. We are for the two-state solution. Or we're for a semi-two-state. Whatever it is, the government has not made clar clear... You're arguing that Zev's charge doesn't apply just to this Israeli government, but to every Israeli, Israeli government Israeli. since Israeli. 1967. Then once you have that clarity, then the discussion about Amona doesn't have to be a complicated discussion. Because it's either within the Israeli uh, uh, sovereignty or not. Well, but because yeah. we're not clear about that, then we're not convinced, right. and of course we have a hard time convincing the world. 
No, right, I agree with you. Mona's trick again. Mona is part of those tricky questions that will have to would have to be decided. Which is, well, that is Palestinian land. In other words, people have deeds. Palestinians have deeds to that land from Jordanian, I guess, time. You know. So then it, it, Israel has to decide. What are we doing if we're turning this into Israel? Or we're not, or we're withdrawing. You know. Um, the, I, Look, I'll, I'll throw a monkey wrench. There was a political party which rose to exactly address this issue, and it's basically disappeared from the political scene. Kadima was founded by Ariel Sharon. It took people from uh, Likud and Labor, from the left and the right center, and said, no, let's do it. Let's begin the process of defining our borders and stop fiddling around. Let's come to our, our strategic decisions and then start implementing them. Well, and one could say the, one of the major things that made it implode, other than corruption... Uh, also, uh, also the sickness of Ariel Sharon and eventually died. No, but because Omar took over the helm and was at, until corruption came. No, but I'm saying, but uh, Omar, as the head, tried to make this decision and made an unprecedented offer to uh, Abbas, right? Um, so Which was again rejected, which brings us back to the root cause of this. Let me just say one thing about right versus right versus left. You know, there are many in Israel that say that the left has shifted to the right, that in general the Israeli society has become more right-wing. And I beg to differ because in the past, if you look at up 60s, 70s, if you were uh, um, – the distinction was pretty clear. Right-wing, Eretz uh, Yisrael the whole of Israel should always uh, um, be under Israeli sovereignty – uh, East and West Bank. Today, we're hearing people in the Likud, the right-wing party, um, even some uh, snippets, some uh, um, um, voices in the more right-wing parties, uh, realizing that this is uh, uh, that some concessions will have to be uh, made. Um, so you're hearing the right-wing or the former right-wing um, relate left-wing messages, which is, yes, we, we are willing to give away parts of our homeland. So there are different ways of looking at right, right versus left. I agree, and I think, I, think, I think that we do that for clarity, and sometimes it ends up muddling the picture and making it more confusing by trying to turn everything into right and left. I think it's obviously more complex. So, Like turning the builder of Samaria, Shimo Perez, into a left-wing. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and that joke will explain in a future episode of the podcast uh, because we're out of time for today. But yeah. uh, future episodes will continue. This is not a, a situation that's going to get get better in the next week or two. Um, so, if I may just uh, uh, invite our audience to start noticing um, uh, as they're reading about this topic, as they're listening to our conversations, but just noticing uh, nuances and, and words that are being used to express different concepts, you know. For instance, uh, for instance Judea and Samaria versus the West Bank, two n different names for, for the same uh, area. For instance, uh, um, occupation and disputed uh, territories. Um, you know, you can notice these uh, things that tell you a lot about the agendas of the speakers or the writers. Um, as you're learning about this. I think, by the way, that the, the, the issue of language and names is a fascinating episode we can also save for a future episode. But this episode was for you, Gabi. We're here for you, and we're here for everybody. So, Gabi, I hope you'll let us know what you think. 
and um, share, share it with, with share it with your friends. The more people who listen, the better. We want everyone to take encouragement that we're here to be in a conversation with you. We have your back. Once you are the student of JU Israel, you're always our student, and we're always here for you. And so that's really, well, I'm very happy with this episode because it really is what it's about. You guys coming to us, and hopefully we're helpful. And if we're not helpful enough, tell us, tell us and we're, we're right here in your corner, and we'll be back to keep it going. So I wish everyone a very enjoyable Chag HaSukot, wherever you are in the world, whether you're here in Israel or abroad. And uh, goodbye from beautiful Jerusalem. Do not forget to check out our website. We'd love people to write articles for the blog, anything that has to do with your thoughts on Israel in any way. Um, don't forget our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org. And, well, we'll, we'll it's all there. Chag Sameach, bye, Alan. Bye, Mike. Bye, Zev. Chag Sameach to you and your family. Bye, Zev. Chag Sameach. Take it easy, guys. See you soon. Bye.